0: James chapter 1. Let me pray and we'll get started here. Father, we thank you so much for drawing us together this morning, for giving us a place um, with cushiony seats and air conditioning and um, carpet to worship. And... uh, just blessing us with accommodations that make it so easy for us to come here and do this. We recognize that all across the world there are people worshiping in far more austere conditions and their worship is no less pleasing to you. So we wanna lift up our sister churches wherever there are people gathered In your name, worshiping in spirit and in truth and hearing from your word, we pray that you would bless them and that we would be no exception to that blessing, that you would show up here in this place and dwell with us. Teach us from your word. Set me aside. Hide me behind the cross so that what happens here this morning uh, is supernatural and changes people's hearts and not just their intellect. We do wanna lift up all of our brothers and sisters who are ill, who couldn't be with us this morning, um, and those who are traveling and couldn't be with us this morning for that reason. We pray that uh, you sustain them with your grace and your power, and that the fact that we are also blessed with the ability to live stream service wouldn't be an excuse for people to stay home, but would be a blessing to those who can't be here. Be with us now as we study your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Last week, we covered a, what I think personally, was a great deal of ground on the subject of evaluating trials. We began by noting that James wants us to count or consider or reckon uh, our trials a certain way. So in order to do that, I suggested three rules that we can follow when evaluating trials so that we evaluate them correctly. Um, First was we should not judge with human senses. Your senses, the, the five that you learned about in elementary school, I think there's, there might, are there six now? There's still five? There's much more than five now, but if there's a main five. Well, yeah, the main five. All right, so you've got sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. Those were the ones I learned in kindergarten. Um, These are present things, present senses. So with those five senses, you can detect what's happening immediately, right now. You cannot detect what it's going to smell like a minute from now. You cannot detect what things are going to look like a minute from now. You can't really even taste something you had last night right now. Senses are present things, and the promises of God are eternal things, which means evaluating spiritual realities with our present senses is going to result in a skewed perspective. Our human senses will be insufficient, for an accounting accurately of any trial. If, when you suffer, you fixate on the pain, the lack of anything in view to make you feel hopeful, the lack of any good word from a preacher or a mentor, the lack of any pain pill which will end the discomfort, you will almost certainly, if you stare at those things, you will almost certainly misunderstand the purpose of the trial. So I suggested rule two, Rule one, don't judge with human senses. Rule two, judge by a supernatural light. As Christians, we have to understand that whatever we suffer in the providence and plan of God, we are not suffering punitively. It's not punishment. It's not us paying for our sins when we suffer. Jesus paid for our sins, and we are not going to add anything to that ledger nor will those who refuse to believe in Jesus add anything to the ledger of payment because the fact of the matter is those in hell are there eternally because no amount of human suffering can pay the price of sin. So your suffering's not punitive. In a supernatural light, when you are in trial, you should see that God is working all things together for good for those who know him and are called by him that's Romans 8:28 <clears throat> so the idea then is if we place our trials under the beams of light which issue forth from the finished work at Calvary things look astonishingly different or they should does that make sense if you look at things under the light of human perception They must look different than when you look at them under the light of the finished work of Calvary. So then we saw third that we should judge on supernatural grounds. And what I said here was the value of a sorrow and the possible outcome of a sorrow changes when death is no longer the final chapter. Let me be perfectly clear, though. Your current trial may end in your death. I don't, I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind. I don't know what anybody's going through that, that would cause me to say that, but it has to be said. What you are going through right now might very well end in your death, but an empty cross and a vacant tomb proclaim loudly that your death in time is merely your entrance into eternity. So you can judge your trial on those supernatural grounds. If your trial does not end in your death, then you may rest assured that your trial will end in the death of your remaining fleshly corruption. And we'll talk about that more today. So those were our three rules for counting. Then we turned our attention to joy and what God actually expects from us when we're in trial. Um, I have, I don't know, I've probably listened in my life, off the top of my head, I'll say to 10,000 sermons or lectures or messages on the word of God. And I have never heard anybody say what I said last week that I'm about to rehearse. Um, Lest you think I'm bringing that up to pat myself on the back, I'm bringing it up so that you'll give it careful consideration. I didn't get this from somebody with degrees hanging on their wall. I believe I did get it from the Holy Spirit, which is better. Nowhere does Scripture command that we constantly be thrilled. And this is not what James is saying either. So we looked at two passages in Psalms. You might be thinking, I've heard that from lots of preachers. That's not, not, not the part I meant. We looked at two passages in Psalms. We looked at Psalm 56 and we looked at Psalm 51. In Psalm 56, David says, God is keeping his tears in a bottle which means God is keeping track of David's sorrows. And he does not say it as though those tears will then be poured out in judgment against David. He says it as though the Father's heart of love compels him to be aware of whatever it is you're going through and to go through it with you. In Psalm 51, he says, A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. I'm going to take it a step further and point out that in Psalm 34, 18, he says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Follow my logic. It cannot then mean when you come to James 1 that counting it joy when we are in trials means that our darkest moments are potentially moments we should be profoundly ashamed of. Think about it like this. We would be ashamed if the commandment were to feel joy instead of sorrow. If the Bible is telling you when you encounter a trial, you must feel joy instead of sorrow, then all of us have accumulated such a pile of guilt over our failure to keep that commandment that we ought to expect nothing in the way of compassion from God. However, if you count it joy alongside your sorrow when you're in trial, knowing that God is at work in your trial, I think you are in full obedience to the directive in James 1. Count it all joy when you you encounter various trials doesn't mean I'm just thrilled all the time. And I would add this, any expectation, That a Christian is someone who never feels sorrow, weeps, or struggles with depression because of some wooly-headed interpretation of Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always, is an unrealistic expectation. Instead, do this. Know in your darkest moment that that darkest moment is adorned with the understanding that it is not a worthless moment. When your heart is breaking, God is at work. That's what the scripture is teaching you. Third, we looked at what James means by various in various trials. Before we could appreciate that, I had to define trials. I define trials as any experience of difficulty which applies pressure to your expectations, your hopes, and your contentment. I'm gonna change that a little bit. A trial, is any experience of difficulty which applies pressure to your hopes, expectations, or contentment. It doesn't have to be all three. So anytime you're going through something which applies pressure to your expectations, hopes, or contentment, you are in a trial. Sometimes trials are trivial, like when someone gives away your last piece of cheesecake Kate endured that trial this week. Sometimes trials are not trivial, like when you or someone you love gets the cancer diagnosis. That's not a trivial thing. It's a trial either way. Finally, we looked at verse 3 and realized that what is actually being tested by our trials is our faith. And I pulled out the, you know, faithful old preacher's illustration of or... O-R-E, ore is rock that's pulled from the earth that has to be heated up to the point of melting so that the garbage that's in it rises to the top and can be removed so that the precious metals are left behind. This is an illustration of what's happening to us when we are in trial. We are heated up, as it were, in God's furnace, okay? What happens to you when you are put into a trial, whether it's cheesecake or cancer, generally speaking, is garbage rises to the top and we act like this is embarrassing and shameful. When am I ever going to stop producing garbage at the onset of a trial? When there's none left to produce, that's when you'll stop. The garbage floats to the top, the garbage is removed. Now, it isn't pleasant to be in God's furnace, having the dross scraped off. So I ran long last week in order to include five encouragements for us when we are in trials. Here they are. One, God's purpose in your afflictions is your perfection and purification, not your destruction. God is not purposing to destroy you when you're in a trial. It is not a sign that he's sick and tired of your nonsense and finally ready to be done with you. Second, The time of trial is appointed by God, not man. It doesn't feel like that when the Third Reich and their SS agents are marching through the neighborhood, throwing those in prison who dare to disagree with the Fuhrer. That looks awfully orchestrated by men, but the fact of the matter is, God is the first cause of every providence which occurs on earth. Nothing happens except that he allows it to third God sits by the furnace wields the file and swings the hammer so whatever is happening to you it is your father in heaven who loves you who's doing it the problem when the hammer comes in and slams into you when you're already so red hot that it makes sparks doesn't feel very loving We have to be able to get our eyes on what God has in view at the end of this process. This was fourth. The trial is not only to prove and approve, but to improve your faith. Now, that sounds a lot like the first point. God is not for your destruction. He's for your purification. But I put it in there twice on purpose. Because as soon as you get done talking about the furnace, everybody starts suspecting that really James is wrong and God is judging me. Fifth. The object of improvement is your faith, not your circumstances. Anybody in here getting younger, better looking, and healthier all the time? Doug? Well, yeah, if they're putting new parts in you, I guess you could argue (laughs) Frank and Doug are in better shape. No, entropy is on full display every morning when you get up and look in the mirror, isn't it? Things are progressing to chaos and it's a horror show. Unless you're, unless you are 16 going on 17. That's the magical time when you just want to be 21, not realizing that it's all downhill from there. (laughs) The object of improvement is your faith, not your circumstances. So the quality of your life on earth in temporal terms may not improve. It may go from bad to worse. But your faith is what God is beating with that hammer and scraping with that file. Today we're going to sew all of this up by including verse four. James 1, verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, <coughs> excuse me, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness is the quality of being unwavering, firm, and resolved in the face of opposition. So James is telling us that testing of our faith produces a faith which is more resolved, more firm, in the face of opposition. This is where most preachers, in my experience, yours might be different, but most preachers turn to a football or wrestling or uh, metal tempering illustration, right? Those old linemen have to do squats so they can blow the defensive line off the ball. Those wrestlers have to lift weights so that they can pin their opponent. Come on. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong. Steel has to be heated up, cooled down, heated up so it's tempered, so it's stronger. That's your faith. And I think those are great illustrations. I have no problem with them other than a minor one, which is I think illustrations of things gaining physical strength casts a little bit of a haze on the idea of faith being strengthened or increasing in resolve because it's hard for us to differentiate between those things which are temporal and those things which are eternal. So it's been my experience that oftentimes I emerge from a trial and, and I, I know, I can tell my faith has been strengthened because I am more dependent on Jesus Christ, okay? However, my body has been weakened And the emotional damage of going through the trial leaves me in need of some kind of therapy. That doesn't, I mean, that's not you getting stronger in the totality of your being. That is your faith getting stronger at the expense of this passing away part of you. Does that make sense? Okay. Some of you have undoubtedly seen a viral video floating around uh, where there's a trick question being asked. I hope I'm not the only one. It's like three times I've seen it, and I'm not searching for it. Uh, The question that's being asked is, it's a trick question. It goes like this. A bat and a ball cost $1.10 in total the bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? And many people will instantly and confidently respond. They do the math in their head real quick. Okay, bat ball package is $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. What does the ball cost? 10 cents. This of course is an idiotically stupid answer, because some of you are insulted right now because that's what you thought i also thought that which is how i know it's an idiotically stupid answer the question states that the bat costs one dollar more than the ball a dollar more than 10 cents is not one (laughs) dollar If the ball costs 10 cents, then the bat would have to cost $1.10 by itself, thus bringing the total to $1.20. Because the bat costs $1 more than the ball. This question is part of a test developed by a psychologist named Shane Frederick in 2005. Frederick developed this test, which he calls the cognitive reflection test in order, he hoped, to replace the hours-long, hundreds-of-questions cognitive tests that most college students and job applicants are forced to take in order to determine their intelligence. Frederick suggested that his test more efficiently evaluates cognition or gauges cognition. There are two general types of cognitive activity, according to scientists. There's system one and there's system two. The cognitive reflection test is designed to identify to you your own tendency to reflexively answer difficult questions without really thinking about them. And then to see if you will stop and reevaluate using system two, which requires more deep thought and consideration than system one. I'll give you an example from my own wandering mind. What if you're driving through your neighborhood to a point where you know that there is typically a stop sign, and there is a sign there, and it is red, but instead of stop, it says go. Will you even think about it, or will you just come to a stop? We don't read every stop sign we see. We see the vague shape and location, and relative altitude to us, and we know what that is, so we stop, or we don't see it, and we blow right through it. But if it said go, the odds of you even... I bet a go sign could sit at that corner in your neighborhood for months before you even notice that it said go, right? The correct response to the cognitive reflection test requires the activation of System 2. For system two to be activated, a person must first realize that their initial answer is incorrect, which requires reflection of their own cognition. Let's take the test, shall we? There are two more questions. You already answered the first one, and many of you failed miserably. Second, if it takes five machines, five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? Five machines takes five minutes. Five is equal to five. So the reflexive answer is 100 minutes. That's the reflexive answer. 100 machines takes 100 minutes because 100 is equal to 100. The correct answer is five minutes because increasing the number of machines does not slow down the production process. Question three. In a lake, there is a patch of lily pads. Every day, the patch doubles in size. It takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake. How long would it take for the lake to be covered halfway by lily pads? Now, this one's a little bit tougher, but the intuitive answer is, every day, lily pad patch doubles in size. How long before half of the lake is covered in lily pads? in 48 days, the whole thing's covered. The reflexive answer is 24. The correct answer is 47 days. Because if every day it doubles in size, once the lake is half covered in lily pads, in one day, it will be fully covered in lily pads. Why am I bringing any of this up? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, the answer to the first question is five cents, for those of you who are still wondering. Thus, well, never mind. We're illustrating the biblical truth that trials test your faith, which produces a more steadfast quality to your faith, which has the effect of perfecting the believers so that they lack nothing. How does a trial do that? Well, the, the cognitive reflection test was given to students at Ivy League schools and you know lower class state schools as well. Admittedly, Harvard, MIT, and Princeton students did better than state school students. However, 90% of all test takers got at least one question wrong. 90% of all test takers got at least one question wrong. So Keila Thompson and Daniel Oppenheimer had an idea. They administered the CRT test to new college students, but they printed the questions in an extremely difficult to read font. The result, 65% of students given the test in a washed out, poorly designed font got three out of three questions correct. Remember, in the previous pool, only 10% got all three questions right. But as soon as it was administered in a far more difficult to read format, that number jumped from 10% to 65. What's the implication? The implication is a difficult to read font engages the level two or system two evaluation process, which is slower and more deliberate and is more likely to reject the intuitive answer of system one. You have to think about it more already because it's hard to read. Why am I dragging you all through this horror show of academic belly button gazing? Because when we struggle, we do better, and even the world of academia realizes that. This is a human reality. This is not something reserved for Christians. All human beings do better when we are caused to struggle. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in the midst of great joys, a new house, a pay raise, fantastic health, uh, uh, a marriage marriage, firing on all cylinders, great kids, the birth of a grandkid or a great-grandkid, the rebirth of a kid or a grandkid or a great-grandkid. In the midst of those wonderful experiences of life, a mature Christian will stop and give praise and glory to God and spend time in thankful prayer. That's what a mature Christian will do. This is great. My life is fantastic. I should thank God for this. And some of us are familiar with that experience. Something wonderful happens, and we stopped one time 20 years ago and thanked God for it. Right? Yeah, come on. At least at Thanksgiving. Sadly, Faith is not nearly as strengthened through blessing as it is strengthened through perseverance in trials. This is a biblical fact. Hebrews 10, 32. Why don't we turn there? Go back, maybe two pages from James 1, and you'll be there. Hebrews 10, 32. The writer says, Recall the former days when... Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, meaning after you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, right? Enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." So the writer of Hebrews instructs us to recall days of trial in order that we might observe how our faith has matured. Because it's assumed when a Christian is in trial, that Christian's faith is being strengthened and grown. When I reflect on times of great personal difficulty, while I would never, ever choose to go back and relive them, when I reflect on times of great personal difficulty, I have to admit my faith was increased because my preferences, the things that I valued, changed. They had to. Trial has a way of making you care less about things you shouldn't care about and care more about things that you should. Amen? Perhaps this is low-hanging fruit, and maybe it's like hacky preaching, but a simple illustration of this reality can be seen in an encounter with forces which prove the limits of human strength. Famously, the colloquialism is, there's no atheists in foxholes. That's not true, because my friend and pastor, uh, Nick Kennicott, Uh, tells the story in Afghanistan of a soldier being hit by friendly fire. And some of his fellow soldiers gathering around to try to save his life. It becomes evident that his life is not going to be saved. And so someone starts praying for him. And in the throes of death, this soldier curses the other soldier out and says, Don't pray for me. I don't believe in God. Now, it was much more colorful language than that, but you can imagine. So apparently, it would be hacky preaching to say, everybody says, oh, God, right before a car accident, because no, they don't. And there are atheists in foxholes. However, when you come up against the limits of your human ability, it certainly does make you a little less independent. Doesn't it? A little less Permanent, A little more aware of your temporal nature. So a tornado has a way of making you reflect on your family, doesn't it? Like you're not going to wrap your arms around the house and hold that bad boy together and keep everybody from getting sucked up. That's not going to happen. You can't. You can't prevent the wind from taking your possessions or worse, your loved ones. If the full force of our corrupt government is brought against us, will our bank accounts, our guns, or our dead bolted doors stop them? Might slow them down, though, but no. <laughs> when your kid is sick, I mean really sick, you can't heal them And doesn't, like, the medicine cabinet start to look pitifully impotent in that moment? Like, Advil ain't doing it. Robitussin ain't doing it. Band-Aids aren't going to do it. Like, they're real sick. You just met, unless you're a surgeon, the limits of your human ability to heal. So trial has a way of bringing us to the end of our independent way. Listen. It doesn't matter how many blueberries you eat or how much spinach you eat or how deeply in ketosis you are. You are going to die unless Jesus comes back. That's where we're all headed. We're going to die. Trials, I believe. Let's see if you agree with me. Trials are a preview of death. A little glimpse of how independent you are not. A little glimpse of how much help you desperately need. So a trial gives you a glimpse of your powerlessness and then something else happens too. 2 Corinthians 12 7 well-known text, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations I had received, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pled with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then, Paul says, then I'm strong. When the circumstances of your life bring you a keen sense of how powerless you are. and you give up on your own strength, you start depending on something much, much better. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what will you rely on when your last day comes? And like assuming you know, You're one of those folks that's gonna go out kind of knowing you're in your last few minutes. And if this is inducing panic in you, that's not my goal, but better you confront the reality of your passing nature now than wait until then and try to scrape together and muster together the faith to get through it. Assuming you're one of those people who's going to know it's the end, What will you rely on to get through death? Not your strength, because that's gonna fade, not your bank account, because you can't buy life, not your guns, not your spouse, not your job, not your kids, not your house. In your day of death, in the moment when it happens, you will rely on Jesus Christ and his perfect work or you will perish for eternity. Trials are a glimpse of death, an opportunity to depend on Jesus' finished work, to get you through this thing that you're going through. Trials, I think, make the font harder to read so that we get the right answer. They put us in a struggle so that we stop depending on things that are worthless. What matters? What's most important? What should I spend the lion's share of my energy on? Where can I make an investment that won't fail? Well, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, means you are fully entrusting your soul to the Father who loves you, to the Son who has saved you from sin, and the Holy Spirit who dwells with you in the midst of the furnace. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.